My friends, today we begin on a small adventure together, a sermon series based around your questions. Ilana and I have been asking you for, uh, rather, asking you for your questions for a few weeks now, and you've definitely come through. Though if you think of something else, by all means, do let us know. As a matter of politeness, um, I'm not going to name the person today uh, that asked the question, but the question is broad and we will go from there. The question we are talking about today is this. What does it mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God? What does it mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God? Now, to get at this question, we need to unpack a few things. First of all, if you are expecting me to say God's sovereignty means exactly this, rattle off a few paragraphs and we're done, you don't know me very well, and I need you to put that expectation aside. Like many theological questions, there's not a single simple answer to this question. Rather, we will discuss a range of answers and we will reveal more about the nature of God and how we relate to God. Indeed, I hope you don't walk away today saying, the question of God's sovereignty was answered in worship today. Instead, I encourage you to think of this as being one part in an ongoing conversation with those gathered in this church today and with those who have gone before in the church universal and the church to come. We're going to look at historical context, but maybe your voice will be part of the historical context to come. Maybe. So, what does sovereignty mean anyway? When we talk about sovereignty today, it's usually in the context of sovereign nations. That is, nations that have the authority to govern themselves, independent of anyone else. Sovereignty in this view sounds very much like a synonym for independent authority. But does this fit when talking about God? Given that God created everything and nothing in life or death can separate us from the love of God? Some people take great comfort in God's immediacy and involvement in their life, not God's separation. And this is good to take comfort in this. On the other hand, how can God not be an independent authority? For God is the potter who shapes the clay, Jeremiah 18, and God is beyond the reach of human understanding from our passage from Isaiah today. There's also comfort in this emphasis, that God is in control and that ultimately God's vision will prevail. There's a tension going on between these views. And maybe you felt this good tension in the Bible, in our understanding of God as a personal being who interacts with us on our level while at the same time being transcendent, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Maybe you've noticed that many of our prayers together begin with a dual naming of God. I tend to use holy and beloved God, but we've also prayed using holy and gracious God, uh, our Father in heaven, and sovereign source of salvation if we're feeling particularly alliterative. These are representations of the tension between God in heaven and God with us. 
Now, if you want to know more about this particular topic, the scholarly terms are God transcendent and God immanent, but that's a sermon for another time. Instead, let's look into this idea of tension between viewpoints a little bit further. In the Presbyterian Church USA, we tend not to speak of God's sovereignty alone, but in tension with another attribute of God, God's grace or God's love. Sometimes the emphasis is more on sovereignty, and sometimes it's more on grace, but both are present throughout the Reformed Church, and indeed in the Church Universal as well. The Heidelberg Catechism, part of our Book of Confessions, begins with this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Here, God's sovereignty is emphasized in classic sweeping terms. Everything happens according to God's will, even hairs falling from your head to the very actions of the cosmos beyond. But this is held in tension with the grace of salvation through Jesus. All things must work together for my salvation. We see this in the Isaiah 40 passage that we read just a moment ago, where God is described both as inhabiting the horizon so far away that the people below look like locusts, little grasshoppers, with power over the whole universe. Yet in this same passage, God is also revealed to be so close as to be able to give power to the tired, revive the exhausted. Again, we have the tension between God's sovereignty and God's love and care for humanity. As uncomfortable as this tension may make us, who like simple answers and settled arguments, it is the tension that brings energy to this discussion. Okay, now I know the mechanical-minded among you are nodding your heads when I said that last phrase, for a spring under tension has potential energy that may change into kinetic energy when it is set free. When you wind your watch, for instance, you're adding energy back to the spring by bringing it into greater tension. The tension between God with us and God in heaven provides energy too. Though God doesn't need to be wound up, thank goodness. Another way to look at this is like a swing dance Stay with me here. In a traditional ballroom dance, the couple make a frame, a single solid object, by placing their hands just so and holding their bodies in tension. That way one can lead or follow by feeling the pressure exerted by their partner. In swing dance, though, there's no solid frame to move around. Instead, you rely on one connection almost entirely. It's provided by the dancers pulling away from each other slightly, leaning back, that provides the tension in their arms, almost like a rope connecting them together, a binding that provides that motion and energy and direction in the dance. 
So long as the tension is maintained, the partners on the dance floor can read each other's direction and move together. So long as that tension is maintained. This leads us to a historical oddity when it comes to God's sovereign grace. Often, sovereignty is emphasized at the expense of grace. When that happens, this tension that's so important to the system is lost, and humanity can stumble out of step with God. To better illustrate this, I'm going to turn now to the late Reformed theologian Shirley Guthrie in his book, Christian Doctrine. The form of the attributes of God's sovereign majesty are expressed either in terms that God is what we are not, infinite, unchangeable, and so on, or that God is what we are at our best, but raised to perfection, most wise, most holy. But when we define God by comparison with ourselves, are we really talking about God or only about ourselves? Moreover, if we begin by thinking abstractly of the sovereign majesty of God before we speak of God's love for us in Christ, how can we avoid making God into the image of a human tyrant? Now, God as a human tyrant writ large is unfortunately an all-too-common understanding. You may have heard of sermons with titles like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, God's Wrath, eternal conscious punishment, or definitions of God's sovereignty that read, God has the right to do whatever God wants to do, and not paired with anything else. That's what happens when we lose this tension and stumble out of our swing dance. We forget that God isn't just God above us, but God with us too. That's what our passage from 1 John is reminding us of. God is love. God does not act contrary to God's nature, which is love. It's not that we love God, but that God first loved us, that God's grace saves us from stumbling. You may have noticed that I keep using love and grace interchangeably. They are different, of course but I'm trying to keep another tension in balance here. You see, Luke and Paul talk about God's grace, while Mark, Matthew, and John refer to God's love in pretty similar contexts. Turning to the book of Confessions, the Scots Confession emphasizes that the covenant of grace extends back to Adam. Later in the brief statement of faith, the emphasis is that God's ruling is expressed as love in Christ Jesus whose life lived and sacrificed for others, was vindicated in the resurrection's overruling of death. Love and grace held intention, referring to God throughout. Now, the Koine Greek word, Koine Greek is a specific time frame. It's the common Greek of the era that the Bible was written in, and so that's why the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. All that to say, the Koine Greek word... (laughs) that we translate as grace is charis, charis or charis. Charis originally meant something akin to charm. That's why it's the root of our word charisma, charisma. 
but it came to mean in Koine Greek, doing good without reward. Doing good without reward. God's grace, then, is that God gives God's self to us freely, without expectation, or even ability to pay God back. God's grace is God's love, eternal and full. God's grace covers our missteps in the dance and pulls us back into relationship with God. And one of the ways to do that is at the communion table. In the sacrament of the Eucharist, Eucharist, the table of good grace, the table of communion with the love of God. When we believe truly that we belong to God's sovereign grace, we can get into the swing of the dance. We can share God's love and grace with others, secure that God will lead us where we are most needed, and will pick us up when we fall. Fill us with energy to fly across the dance floor like eagles wheeling in the sky. For nothing in life or in death can separate us from the love of God. May God in heaven lead you in the dance of life. May the Christ, God with us, fill us with love for God and each other. May the Holy Spirit remind us of the tension that causes us to fly like eagles and never grow weary of the dance. Amen.